0: Welcome everyone. Uh, Welcome to the third session of the 2014 Geriatric Mental Health uh, Series, Self Neglect Concerns with Older Adults, presented by Doreen Kasselow. The Northern New England Geriatric Education Center and its activities are funded by the Health Resources and Services Administration, also known as HRSA. This funding allows us to offer this program to you at no charge. Our work is to enhance the care of older adults by offering a comprehensive interdisciplinary education program targeted to the healthcare workforce. We emphasize evidence-based best practices in geriatric care. In order for you to receive educational credit for this program, you must be signed in, legibly, so be sure that you sign the attendance sheet if you are at a remote site. If you cannot read, if we cannot read your handwriting, we cannot award your credit. Um, if you are watching online, you need to complete a form online very soon after the program. Email geriatriced at dartmouth.ed. And let me spell that out G E R I A T R I C, period, E D at dartmouth, D A R T M O U T H dot E D U. So if you could email that today. Uh, you would need to link to this form or call 603-653-3443. We have several new online viewers so please contact us if you need assistance. Again let me repeat that telephone number 603-653-3443. You should have received an evaluation form that you will need to Uh, that we will need back from you after the session. If you are not at a remote site, please hand this form to your site liaison. If you are watching via live stream from your personal computer, please complete the form online and we will document your participation that way. Finally, you should have received a form that tells you how to obtain your continuing education credits and contact hours online. Be sure to keep the sheet so that you can refer to it later. If you have cell phones please silence them now if you haven't already. Remote sites, your audio should be muted. If you have a question during or after the presentation please unmute your audio and get the speaker's attention by raising or waving your hand. None of the planning committee members for this series including today's speaker have any influencing financial relationships to disclose and there will be no off-label uses discussed. And let me introduce your speaker, Doreen Kusselow is a, a supervisor with the New Hampshire Bureau of Elderly and Adult Services working from the Claremont New Hampshire office. In this role she is responsible for protective investigations of abuse and neglect cases involving incapacitated adults and the elderly, coordination of home-based services and collaboration with other agencies and organizations. She has also worked as a social worker for the New Hampshire Division for Children, Youth and Family Services nonprofit organizations, and the New hampshire Laconia State School and Training Center. She received her BS from UNH and her MSW from the State University of New York in Albany, and has additional certification from Keene State College. So Doreen. Thank you for having me, everyone. I'm pleased to be here.
1: And today, what I'd like to do is to go over basically what we do within our division. I'm going to look at the overview of the law, that's the Adult Protective Services Law, how to make a protective referral report, and what happens to reports once we receive them. And then, at the conclusion of that, I will use a case as an illustration to go over some of the points that I've covered. Protective services to adults are defined by New Hampshire law, and the Department of Health and Human Services is charged with carrying out those protective services And that's the actual statute, the RSA 161F in subsections 42 through 57. The purpose is for the protection of incapacitated adults. Our guiding principles, if you would, are to really preserve the right of self-determination. So individuals have that right to make decisions. Even though they may be poor ones, they have that right to guide and direct and make decisions as to how their, what their life, what direction their life is going to take. Adults should be able to live in safe conditions, and they should be able to live free from the interruption of state government. However, that's not always possible, at times, that's when we get reports, and we need to look into different situations, and all the way through, if necessary, involving court in order to protect the individuals. So self-neglect is the area that we receive a great many reports. I dare say about two-thirds of the reports that we receive are self-neglect. And by the law, this is the definition that we use. It's an act that the individual is doing, or it's an omission by that incapacitated adult that results, or could result, in the deprivation of the essential services, which is really what one is necessary in order to live. But it's looking at those necessary supports that they need in the areas of mental health, emotional, or physical, all contributing to their health and safety. The target population of those who are 18 and older, there's no end age. And what is our definition of capacity, again defined by the New Hampshire law. It's the physical, mental, or emotional ability that a person has and whether they're able or unable to manage their own personal affairs, such as their finances, their home, in their best interest. And if they are not able to do that, have they been able to delegate that authority to someone else to do that for them? because if they are able to do that, then we would not view them as incapacitated. There's a mandatory reporting law. In some states, in their adult protective law, they designate a certain group of individuals as mandated reporters. New Hampshire does not. New Hampshire law states that any person who believes or suspects has suspicion that reports in good faith that one is incapacitated. And has been subjected to either abuse, neglect, or exploitation, self neglect, or they're living in a hazardous living condition, they are bound by law to report and make that report. Where are those reports made? We've been moving for the past several years toward a centralized reporting in Concord, and that is our 800 number shown on the screen now. However, there's a few regions in the state, such as in the Claremont area, in the western part, and in the eastern part, in the Rochester area. Two areas right now, we're the only ones doing our own intake, as we call it. However, there is no wrong number. If you call the central number, they will refer you to our local office. I've brought some law booklets today that will be available through the Aging Resource Center. So if you're interested in having a copy of an excerpt of the New Hampshire Protective Law, that's where you you can contact. On off-duty hours, so for us, Monday through Friday, 8 to 4.30, there is always someone available to take a call of concern with regard to abuse, neglect, or exploitation, or self-neglect. During off hours, be that the nights or weekends or holidays, please call the police or sheriff wherever the incident has occurred. And what do you report? Everything that you know about that situation. So all the information that you have, despite the fact that you may not feel you have enough, that's fine. Please report to that centralized number, or the local number in your region, if it's one of our two offices. And how do you report? It would be by telephone or by fax. We receive a great many faxes from police departments, from visiting nurse associations, from other agencies. So it does not have to be by telephone if the most convenient way for you is to do it by fax or by written report in the mail. There also is a section in the law that that refers to failure to report. If one is aware of a situation of abuse, neglect, or exploitation, or self-neglect, and they fail to report, It can be punishable all the way up to a guilty of a misdemeanor. Now, I have to say in the years of my experience with the Bureau of Elderly and Adult Services, I've not seen that exercise. That's not to say that it couldn't be, but I have just personally have not seen it nor am I aware of it occurring in other areas of the state. But it could be. Now, when you become aware or you think you're aware of a situation involving self-neglect or any of the other categories of abuse, neglect, or exploitation, and you're starting. wonder is this the right information? Do I really need to report? Is that person really incapacitated? Don't second guess yourself. Just give us a call because the worker who's on the other end of the line We'll be, giving, we'll be asking you a lot of questions and they'll be guiding you through that experience of what you've seen, what you've heard, and what your suspicions are. So don't hesitate to call. We will. That is our job on the other end to really determine if that category that you're calling about fits the statute because we have to take that information you're giving us and match it up to the law and then the same thing with incapacity. So now you've called us, and as you can see, we receive a great many phone calls during the course of the year. Um, Last year was 12,000. Not all calls are actual protective reports. Some people call for general information, where do I get this service, where do I go for this, and even if it becomes an actual report, at the end, the conclusion for us in our language, if we found the report to be actually true, then in our language it would be founded. Not all reports are founded. Some reports you really, in good faith, suspect something is going on, but as a result of our looking into it, it would become what we call unfounded. It doesn't mean we still can't help the person, but not all reports will be founded. However, of those reports, and mind you, again, we start with age 18, and we're looking at incapacity as really not a temporary condition, but something that is more long-lasting and chronic. A great many of those, again the vast majority, last year we took in approximately 2,500 reports and again about two-thirds of those involve people who are age 60 and over. That's the federal definition for elderly is 60 and that's what New Hampshire also uses. So those are the categories that we look at, neglect, self-neglect, exploitation, and there's really three different types of abuse, there's physical abuse, emotional and sexual. So when we have a report those are the categories that we need to match up for the definitions which are contained in the law. and Just to give you an idea of numbers, you can see for the year 2012, again the skewing and self-neglect, the vast majority of of our cases we really have self-neglect. There's a lot of reasons for that. People are living longer, they're staying at home where they want to be, so people today, it's it's not an agricultural society where people are necessarily moving in with relatives on, on the neighbor farm. Um, they're living alone, and oftentimes it may start off okay after the death of a spouse or a loved one with whomever they're living, but eventually things start to change as one becomes very aged, and it becomes more and more difficult to manage the home or their own medical conditions. So people become at greater risk, and they have safety concerns um, that, that we have, and, and others as they become older living alone. It becomes much more difficult for them to do that safely. So calling a report in after you suspect that um, there is something that you need to report. If it is done in good faith, no reporter should ever be afraid of liability. We're a civil agency, Adult Protective Services. We do not have the ability to prosecute anyone. However, police do. And sometimes we need to refer to police. But if a report is made in good faith, no one is subject to liability for fear of prosecution because they have made a report, as long as that report has been made in good faith. What happens after we receive the report? We have 72 hours to start our actual, what we call, investigation, which is looking into the matter that's been referred to us. During that 72 hours, we're gathering information, we're contacting anyone that knows anything about the situation that we know at the time of the report, so we call that collaterals. We're, built, we're, we're <coughs> contacting a lot of collaterals, be it neighbors, be it relatives. Um, Again, without compromising the situation at home, we're trying to get a lot of information from people that may be involved with the family or the individual. So perhaps it's the person is involved with the medical community, so we might be reaching out to medical where the person has made frequent trips to the emergency room. Do they have a primary care physician? We might be seeking out medical records there. Are they involved with the behavioral health? Um, center nearby so we may be reaching out and getting as much information as possible to give us a good background information before we actually do the home visit. We have 30 days to conclude our investigation and during that time there will be home visits made and there will be contact made uh, about with the person in their home situation. If it's an emergency, however, at the time that the report actually comes in, then we're not going to be waiting the 72 hours, we're going to be going out um, immediately. Our involvement, typically speaking, we're working with the individual at home and oftentimes hopefully it will result in some services and, and remediation of, of the situation um, as it is from when we first started. However, sometimes we have to go all the way up to involving court. So then that may involve guardianship, which is, it could be a guardianship of the individual uh, over the person, which would involve decision making for medical matters as well as decisions on where to live but also be involving guardianship over the estate, which is financial matters and how to manage the money. So that, that would be definitely a court involvement at the probate court level. Entry of premises. Typically, we do not have difficulty entering, however, initially, um, keep in mind, we are the uninvited guest, so when we receive a report, the individual is not aware that that report is being made. And you as a reporter, your name is always kept confidential. It is never re- uh, revealed to the individual. So when we show up with that individual's home, the first thing we do is introduce ourselves, show our badge, tell them the purpose of why we're there, how we became involved. We actually review the allegation, the report that was made to us with them so they understand very clearly why we're there. Sometimes there's porch door conversations through the screen door, and we're not allowed in the first time. But usually, generally speaking, we are allowed in. They're usually scheduled visits, but sometimes they're not. Because of the information that we receive, we have to look at safety of the worker as well as safety of the individual and not to compromise that. So we have to look at a lot of factors at the time of reporting. Sometimes we may even ask for police accompaniment if we really feel there are are safety issues at home, um, especially in the cases of involving uh, neglect and exploitation involving another individual. And lastly, that's also in the statute, if needed, again, I've not seen it exercised, but we could ask the court for a court-ordered examination to really assess functionality of an individual. Who has access to our information? I'm sorry, who, we access information. Um, we are gatherers of information. We gather a great deal of information during the course of our investigation, um, depending, again, on the nature of the report. If it is a self-neglect, chances are we're probably going to need a great deal of medical information. It's probably going to cross over into that realm, although occasionally we will encounter some people who are indeed, physically they're doing very, very well, but cognitively they they have definitely significant deficits that they're impairing their functionality in the home. So we may be seeking out mental health information. If it's a report of uh, exploitation, we're going to be looking for financial records from banks, from investment brokerage houses. So wherever that that money uh, um, is being deposited, what is the stream of the money? So we're going to need to be collecting all kinds of information. During the course of our investigation, if at any given time we feel that um, a crime has been committed, let's use an example of self-neglect. One is not taking their medication properly, but um, they're... As a result of the investigation, we're finding that uh, adult son or daughter is really the one managing the mom's money, which is why she's not able to purchase her pills, and therefore having a lot of difficulty. So we may take another report during the course of the investigation, and then also be investigating two different types, if you would. So we would need both financial and, and medical records, because maybe mom's was having a lot of difficulty medically as a result of not uh, taking medication, and maybe there were other factors. So we're going to gather all that information. Who has access to our records? Well, at the conclusion of our investigation, the person that we have the call of concern about, who do we refer to as the victim, they can ask for actually a copy of our written report, or their guardian, or their attorney. If at any time, as I said during the course of the investigation, we feel a crime has been suspected, we're going to call and refer to police, They may in turn, or we may refer to also the Attorney General's office. And they will then conduct their criminal investigation at the same time that we're conducting our civil investigation. And sometimes we do joint interviews together. Sometimes uh, they will ask us to hold off for a period of time while they're investigating a certain area that would then compromise their report. So we work together. Or the courts, if necessary. Um, Again, if that criminal matter would go to court, some of that information there would be shared. So really, we do not dispense information only to Department of Justice, if you would, to police, AG's office, and to court. However, there is a narrow slice at the end of our investigation. So if a person has services going into their home, let's say they have a visiting nurse association going in. And in that instance, I was using the medication with um, a son or daughter controlling the checkbook and really managing mom's money for her. But in reality, they're taking a lot of the money for themselves, buying a screen TVs, buying. Um, an RV or whatever they're purchasing. Um, we would need to then, at the end of the investigation, so that it really impacts that service agency, the VNA going in, we might reveal to them that um, the son now has been, um, mom is aware of the situation. She doesn't want to change it. She understands the son was basically um, stealing money. Let's say it's even in the hands of the police to further investigate criminally. But he's still living there. She wants to provide him housing, but he doesn't have a source of income. So we may share with the agency that he should not be seeing um, managing mom's money. And if they overhear a conversation that he's asking her for money, uh, they suddenly see large purchases in the home showing up, uh, new computer equipment and that, that they would need to get back in touch with us. So we will share that information with an agency because it will definitely impact in this instance, it was the ability of mom to be able to purchase her drugs, so we will share with the service agency if it impacts their service as well. What are some of the indicators of self-neglect? Well, some of the areas that we look at, certainly, are the survival areas, if you would. What do we need in order to be able to live? Uh, food, clothing, shelter, um, hygiene, it sounds, doesn't sound like maybe a necessity of life, but we again. We're not dealing with standards that are some people will call in that are friends, neighbors, or relatives, and they really choose they would choose if they could to have that person live in the manner in which they're living. So they're they're imposing a higher standard, if you would. We're looking at minimum standards. We're looking at what is necessary in order for one to live. We're not looking for a higher standard. We're just looking at the necessities. So food, does that person have food? Well, yes, if you ask them they may have food. But in reality, upon checking, maybe they have five months' worth of Meals on Wheels sitting in their refrigerator, rotten food, spoiling, and um, are they really accessing? Is that what they're eating for food? Or their cupboard's really bare, and they really don't have food at all. Do they have access to water? Do they have running water in the home? Not everyone has running water that we encounter, especially in some of the very rural outlining areas. But are they really providing for themselves? Some people's pipes freeze in the winter time, but they go out and they buy large containers of, of bottled water. To see them through until the pipes have now defrosted, and and then they go back to having their their water source. So again, people have told us they have springs in, in their backyard or they have a well. When in reality, it's just runoff water. So it depends on their definition as we look into it uh, more closely. Clothing again, are people dressed adequately for the weather, um, or is someone compromised because of uh, cognitive impairment and confusion and are they going out in the middle of winter when it's 20 degrees and suffering frostbite. So sometimes it's more than just do they have the clothing but are they putting on the proper clothing. We have other clients that sometimes the work will come back and after many visits over the course of two months someone's still in the same set of clothing. They haven't changed. It's still the same dirty food stained clothing and they haven't had a shower or a bath. So we look at kind of all aspects of that. These are just some of the main categories that we kind of take a look at. And same thing with medication. If they have prescribed meds, are they taking the medication? Are they underusing medication, or are they overusing medication? The worker will actually ask to see the pill box, look at the pill bottles, match up the dates with when they were last filled, and look and see how they prescribe, and then see how many pills are left have they been taking them. Do they have certain? Uh, procedures that they're supposed to follow for a certain medical condition, be it diet or whatever they're supposed to follow, are they following that? And and issues of their own personal safety, have they been um, urged and encouraged to use a four-pronged walker or a a, 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 a four-pronged cane or a walker, but are they sitting in the corner or on the porch and they're never accessing them and as a result they're following, becoming injured and showing up at the hospital um, with great frequency. So other considerations might be, other than the, the bare essentials, what we considered on, on that previous slide, would be, does a person present with confusion? Who does their meal preparation? Or do they have any meal preparation done at all, or are they just buying snack food and, and that's their food? Who does their bill paying? Because oftentimes that's a major area, if they're starting with uh, any type of dementia, those fine details tend to start to go first, the, the, the bill paying is another major. Um, indicator of of how they're managing and able to pay their bills. Their activities of daily living, uh, dressing, grooming, um, eating, are they able to do those, those things themselves or do they really need someone to assist them and is that person who's supposed to be assisting them, are they coming with regularity or are they really just dropping by and showing up once or twice a month? Are they showing signs of depression? Are they showing signs of alcohol and drug usage? Uh, you'd be surprised how many elder people that haven't had an earlier history, although with some of the drugs, some of our younger incapacitated adults do in earlier in life that continues. But alcohol usage in the elderly, uh, we see a great deal in the loss of a spouse um, that, that, that produces behavior that they slip into depression and that they start to use alcohol for the first time heavily in their life. Eyesight. Um, can they really see what the pill bottle is saying, or do they really need adaptation so that they can now be able to cook adequately and not burn themselves at the stove? Hearing. oftentimes a lack of hearing will present as confusion, but really their hearing is so impaired that they're just feeling the need to answer the question, so they're answering you but they're really not hearing with with good clarity at all what they're hearing um, from what's actually been spoken to them. Are there dental problems? Are there incontinence and how are they managing that? Is that preventing them from leaving the home? Isolation. Are they, uh, someone can be isolated even living in a large apartment building, just never venturing out and then socializing with their um, previous friends and neighbors. Are they now starting to just be a recluse inside their own apartment, or are they are living on a back rural road and really have contact with little of anyone, and they really don't go to maybe a local senior center or a congregate meal? Do they have an untreated mental health problem that maybe had been treated in the past, but now they're no longer seeking treatment? And are they falling with any great regularity? And again, what is happening? Are they injured? Has anyone spoken to them about services? And what decisions have they made about services? Have they refused them? So those are all issues that we look at. And we are not the only state that looks at protective services. Vermont being our closest neighbor, certainly they look at abuse, neglect, or exploitation. And if you have the same concerns, there is a central reporting number. And if we have a report, um, that comes in about someone, especially if it involves others, um, such as abuse and, and neglect and exploitation. And let's say the alleged perpetrator, who's the the, the, the the doer, if you would, of the the abuse and the neglect, moves to another state. Um, we're still involved. We may have the victim in New Hampshire, but we're going to contact that other state. We've worked with states all over the United States to making a referral. So just because that person moves, they're not moving away from someone looking into that problem. So that's why it's also very important to report. Are there any questions on protective services? So the reporting is based by where the person lives? Yes, and sometimes we will be working with that neighbor, state, especially Vermont. We do have a, because we are so close to Vermont. It's where usually the incident occurs. But sometimes the son of the daughter, who's the perpetrator, if you would, lives next door. So then we'll be asking the other state. So sometimes we will do an interview for another state, send them the then our report, and vice versa. So we work in tandem with the other states to conclude the investigations or whatever. So whether it's the banking or whether it's neglect or whether it's abuse, it's, it's all all areas. Any other questions?
0: Do ask the sites?
1: Any uh, one on the remote sites? Okay. Having heard none, then I'm going to go on to.
0: What's
1: that? Having heard none, then I'm going to go on to the. Case illustration of self neglect. This is the case of, of Doris and Kurt. We first became involved in August of 2009. Uh, actually, first, there was a hospital um, that called and reached out to a um, nonprofit agency in a community because Doris's husband had been taken to the hospital and he subsequently died and they had no way to reach her there was no way to reach her by telephone and so they felt best that if someone could make a home visit so they reached out to a nonprofit um, agency and they made a home visit and upon going to the home realized that it was really hazardous homeless conditions that they were looking at and they made an APS referral and that's how we became involved with uh, Doris who was 64 at the time. And she lived with her brother, Kurt, in a very small uh, rural community, and lived in a, a trailer with um, four Pomeranian dogs. Upon the first visit that the APS worker had, the Adult Protective Services worker, what they could see was the trailer was in very, very poor condition. So just looking at the trailer on the site, it was a knoll, it was on a hill, and uh, there was no driveway, so that the yard was scattered really with very large boulders and, you um, there was a scattering of four to five non-functional cars at the bottom of the hill. So you really had to walk up. And the other thing that, that struck you immediately is that there were no steps to get into the home. So you had to kind of hoist yourself up to the entrance of the of the trailer. The trailer was also on a, on a um, as I said, a hill. And it was leaning backwards toward the hill. So not only was it supported by the back of the hill, and the back of the trailer was supported by the hill, but there were years worth of very large garbage bags also, they had been put behind the trailer that were helping to support the trailer. Uh, there was no central heat, and there was no running water um, inside. When you walked in, there was a very small um, clearance there as as the door would open. Uh, there was many broken windows as you looked at the to- to- as you looked at the um, the trailer. Uh, Most were broken and had had attempts of plastic to cover them, obviously, to keep some of the heat in. But most of the plastic was ripped and torn and pulling away from the windows. Uh, The toilet inside the home was not functional. There was many, many um, garbage bags that were filled with capacity and very, very heavy. They were not ones that you could move or easily kick out of the way in order to walk. There were no walkways within the home. Uh, The toilet was non-functional. There was, uh, as I said, only a very, very small passageway near the front of the home, but no other passageway. Uh, The roof was in poor condition, and you could tell that from looking at the house externally as well as internally because mostly all the ceilings were sagging and peeling and very obviously had had a lot of water damage. And uh, the dogs would reach you at the door. They were um, really. Barking very loudly and jumping, and it was very obvious that the dogs had urinated and um, defecated throughout the home. When you entered the home, the kitchen was off to the right, and the cabinets were pulling away from the wall and really leaning toward the countertop. Um, you could not see really the countertops uh, very well because they were all covered uh, with miscellaneous items. The stove, was used for storage. There were items inside the stove as well as on top of the stove. Uh, There was spoiled food everywhere. All the surfaces were really stacked. Um, The only place for cooking was a very small area on the floor, and Kurt was in charge of the cooking. Uh, There was a cardboard box, and on top of the cardboard box there was a cookie sheet, and on top of that was a hot plate. And that's what he used for cooking. As you entered to the left, there was the living room, and there were flies everywhere. Um, The odor was really overwhelming throughout the home. Uh, There was a sofa in the living room, but again, it was covered with all kinds of of various and miscellaneous items, a very, very small um, sitting surface on on the sofa on one corner, and it was very dirty and very stained. And again, the dogs were were following anyone new that came to the home with barking and uh, with a high-pitched bark and, and jumping. As you went further down the hall, you had to walk over all the garbage bags. That was again, the hallway had no walkway whatsoever, so um, it was very, very cluttered and very difficult to navigate. Uh, but that's where Doris's bedroom was, and that's where she spent her time. And she spent her time in bed. Uh, she, Doris. Um, was on um, oxygen full time, so she could she was ambulatory, but it was much easier for her to stay in bed so she had all kinds of things around her with how she spent her day she had uh, video cassettes were stacked about half the room had um, stacks going to the ceiling, taking up probably two walls in the room there were um, uh, There was a radio that she listened to there was also a kerosene heater, and there were two other kerosene heaters scattered throughout the home, but there was one in her room. Uh, The windows in her room were also broken with some torn plastic um, covering them. Uh, You could not see the carpet really in her room at all, and there was a very, very strong odor. Her mattress was also very soiled uh, with urine and feces, and there was debris all around her, around the bed, uh, which she was um, utilizing during the course of the day. Doris herself was obese. She was about 5'4", she was not a tall woman, and as I said, she was on oxygen and her breathing was very labored. She had poor hygiene. Um, she had um, uh, her hair was shoulder length, um, not not uh, was usually stringy long hair. Uh, she had scabs on both of her arms and very dirty fingernails and very stained and dirty clothing. She had many missing teeth. Um, her hygiene was poor, but however she was very pleasant, very talkative with the social worker, and whatever the the um, social worker would ask her, she was. Uh, very willing to give answers. She was not at all defensive. She was very conversational. Kurt, on the other hand, was about five foot six. He was very, very thin. He was ambulatory. He walked very hunched over, a very receding hairline. and He was very, very <coughs> quiet. Uh, he deferred to doors and he only answered in very short questions with very short answers to the questions. The family history is that they've been on this property their their life. Doris and Kurt, this was their family homestead. They never <coughs> left home. They lived with their parents. Um, Doris had been married for 32 years. Um, she had a daughter who was ultimately put up for adoption, and um, her husband worked. He w- he worked as a, in maintenance. And Kurt actually worked about 20 years outside of the home in a restaurant as a dishwasher. Doris, however, had never worked outside of the home, so. The manner in which they had um, groceries and errands accomplished is that Doris would call a taxicab. Kurt would meet the taxi at the bottom of the hill and he was the one that did the errands and and did the groceries. Um, They used the sources of the the three sources of income for the household. Doris had a very, very small grant for food stamps. Um, Kurt's social security is $650 a month, he had his pension, $100. And then they had uh, Doris's husband's income, and now that was missing. So now things were going to be even tighter. They had no history at all of any cash assistance from the state. They basically met all their, their needs um, themselves. They were what I would describe a survivalist family. They made do with what they had, and they made it work for them. The only exception to that was they had, um, the past 12 years, they had a, a New Hampshire legal assistance attorney. And he did help them with a the tax deferment on the property so they were not responsible for taxes to the town. So what did APS do when we became involved? Well, the following day after the first home visit was made, Meals on Wheels were put in place for both Doris and Kurt. So now that we knew they had a, a, a well-balanced meal coming to the home every day, almost immediately, the workers started an aid to the permanently and totally disabled application through uh, Medicaid for Doris. Uh, this was able initially to increase her food stamps, and then a few months later on, she, because it's a process that you need to go through as far as um, medical eligibility, because it's a permanent disability that you have to qualify in order to get this type of cash assistance. She did get it ultimately, but not immediately. Uh, the worker also helped Doris apply for her husband's um, social security uh, on his behalf. So she did get that 688 So that essentially just about took the place of her husband's um, in, in, um, income. They also arranged for volunteer um, uh, to come and help to get Doris for her medical appointments. However, Doris, uh, for the most part, was pretty much non-compliant with her appointment for her appointments. She really didn't understand the need for ongoing um, routine visits, so she oftentimes would cancel or just be a no-show. Um, it was also physically very taxing for her. Um, given her labored breathing, so it was seen as a great deal of effort for in her mind and one that she didn't see a lot of value in. Um, the worker also obtained two to three cinder blocks that became their steps to be able to get into the home. Um, the worker also discussed with Doris that she was really the primary decision maker um, would she like assistance in cleaning up the home? Initially, she said, I'll think it over, but ultimately did say yes. So almost immediately, um, coordination started with a lot of um, social service organizations in the community as well as with the town, to how, how and what is the best strategy to clean up. With the ultimate being that um, it was decided that the home really was condemnable and the goal was really to have the um, trailer dis- dismantled and demolished and, and taken away. So there was a, a, a group that donated very, very large dumpster. They're really the kind that's used in construction sites. And uh, in the interim, Doris accepted homemaker services which was really not to clean the home but to help package the things up that they wanted to keep in with that goal that the home would be ultimately demolished. So that was the purpose of the homemaker. And the town actually assisted with, it, with the removal of the non-functional cars at the bottom of the hill as well as grading a section of land to um, act as, a, um, as a somewhat of a driveway so that accessibility would be a little more easy going in. That large dumpster by the way was replaced four to five times during the course of the clean out of the trailer. So now the trailer's cleaned out a few months later but Doris doesn't want to leave the property. She's afraid if she leaves she'll never get back and she doesn't want to give up possession of her dogs. Um, the dogs is really a pivotal point in her in her decision that she has to her dogs are really Uh, very treasured to her. um, And she does not want to leave the property. And Kurt goes along with whatever decision that Doris has made. We even went so far to offer, through emergency monies, a a short-term stay in a motel. And um, Doris would not accept that, again, for fear over what would happen with the dogs. So another agency, another social service agency, found a small camper. And it was moved to the base of their property. And they actually moved into the um, camper. And it was indeed a very small camper, it had one bed, doors took over the one bed, Uh, a small table in the camper, Kurt took because it converted to a a bed, and it had two electric heaters in there. Now in December 2009 it was a very cold December, the temperature inside the camper probably never went higher than 45, 50 degrees. Uh, The dogs again continued to urinate and defecate inside the trailer and when it was difficult to put them out timely and as a result it never happened um, because that was delegated to Kurt, and who had a lot of difficulty controlling the dog, so it was no different than their, their main trailer now that has been dismantled. Um, so the home conditions inside the very, very small trailer were deteriorating very rapidly. APS we called uh, for police often to do welfare checks because of cold temperatures to make sure that they were still okay and we asked that behavioral health become involved uh, through the REAP program and REAP stands for Referral Assistance and uh, referral education and assistance program, and allows the worker to do four to six visits. And it didn't take long, but the camper was really unsafe, um, with the, between the heating situation, the cold temperatures, and the dogs' uh, messes inside. And Doris again is refusing to leave. So early in January 2010, um, Behavioral Health filed a petition for an emergency, if I'm sorry, for an involuntary emergency admission. And so they both were forcibly removed by police and brought to a local hospital. And the the dogs were brought to the Humane Society. And and later they actually went to a a temporary um, foster home, if you would, for dogs. Uh, But at the hospital, um, both were examined, Kurt and Doris, and they were both found to be competent to make their own decisions. So that really ruled out at that point, in that juncture, to be able to be involuntarily admitted to New Hampshire Hospital was discovered to have a urinary tract infection. Um, again, they had been living in that small camper so um, um, it was very difficult so he was admitted. Doris was initially an in observation status but quickly her breathing deteriorated and then she was actually admitted. Uh, next was that uh, the workers started the uh, Choices for Independence program which is through the Medicaid. Um, Uh, division, and that's actually uh, an alternative to nursing home care, where if one is accepted onto the program, it's dual eligibility, financial and medical, so you have to meet that nursing home level of care, and that you can actually have services in the community in your own home. So we were anticipating them to be released from the hospital and go to some other type of alternative housing. And in February, that did occur. Both were on the, the program at that point in time, through the Medicaid, the Choices for Independence. And they both went, went to a residential care facility. Different, which is different facilities, because no one facility did we find that had vacancies for both of them. Um, however, uh, Doris's was short stay. She stayed one day, and her breathing really deteriorated rapidly, and she was readmitted to the hospital. Kurt, however, continued to stay in his residential care facility. During that next several months, many months, all the way up to November of that year, um, Doris pooled her savings money and Kurt's money and she herself initiated the search and she found a 1980s trailer which was certainly much better. Uh, The town had to give um, safety inspections to it so it was in much, much better condition than the previous one which was probably a 1950s or 60s version. Um, And then um, the APS worker as well with other um, social service agencies uh, put grants together and volunteer services for septic fuel and a slab. Uh, The town helped with ground preparation. And um, Doris, in the meantime, from February to November, um, after her hospital stay, which went back for a very brief residential care, say one day, she then transferred to a nursing home, and that's where she stayed up until November. And so it was during that time she was in a nursing home that she made all the purchase and the arrangements on her own for the, the purchase of the trailer. She did require assistance, however, for getting the home conditions ready uh, to leave. Uh, another transition program through um, the federal government and, and teaming up with Medicaid is Passport Program. So, that helped to modify the bathroom in the new trailer so that doors would be able to access it within their own home. So, this would be the first time they would have a running, functional bathroom for a long time. Uh, volunteers also put in a fenced in area because we were really hoping that if they had an area uh, for the dogs where they wouldn't run off and they could be put outside for toileting. So, they moved back in into December into their, um, into their new trailer. However, um, they failed to really let the dogs out. And again, the dogs are urinating and defecating inside the house. So that went on for a period of time before the the house, again, was really starting to deteriorate. But this is a look at Doris's medical conditions. Uh, Her pulmonary and lung disease, hypertension, hypotension, congestive heart failure, and she was incontinent. So she genuinely had medical problems. Um, However, Doris um, uh, was really... um, Non-compliant with, as I said earlier, her routine medical visits. Um, she had a good relationship with her um, pulmonary doctor, but not so much with her primary care doctor. So in the next um, year, year and a half, she really was um, discharged from at least four to five different primary care doctors. So that was always a challenge to help get her reconnected. However, when her breathing would become so poor, she would call 911, and she would call the local um, emergency services. And she knew when she was in crisis, and they would respond, and she would end up actually admitted to the hospital. So it wasn't just a brief ER visit. She was actually in such poor condition they would admit her, and she usually for anywhere from one to three weeks because um, she uh, did also refused rehab services. She was afraid if she ended up back in a nursing home that she would never get back out. So her her not only was her health deteriorating, but the home conditions were also deteriorating, and by um, June of 2012, the homemaker quit. The homemaker could no longer felt that they could go into the home that was basically so much urine and um, um, dog feces everywhere. So not only did the homemaker quit, but the EMTs are now making many referrals, protective service. So during that course of the time that they went into their new trailer, we have continued to get protective referrals, because home conditions were rapidly deteriorating. A commode was secured for um, Uh, Doris, even even though she had a working toilet, was walking then became more difficult for her, but she didn't use a commode, she used pads, chucks, uh, soiled clothing would be thrown on the floor, sometimes she would lie in her own waste for several days. Um, Not only was uh, she um, uh, defecating, urinating in her own bed, but so were the dogs jumping up on her bed. So again, her bedroom was in really, in very, very poor condition. Kurt increasingly can't control the dogs and there's no homemaker to be found under the program for CFI. They refuse uh, nursing LNA services but they do have an RN going in for, for Doris and under the program you can have a personal services, personal care services provider and um, someone there was there often to help um, Doris under this program. Um, Doris was never really defensive unless you really talked with her about the dogs and that was the really touchy subject with her. So she really did become angry and defensive when, uh, and the social worker under the APS program many times talked about behavioral contracts. And when uh, workers come to the home, when the nurse comes to the home, when the the personal care service provider comes to the home, the dogs really need to be outside. They they cannot be jumping all over everyone. Um, Kurt needs to let the dogs out more timely. So, however. We didn't experience much success in that area, uh, the dogs were still inside, Kurt had great difficulty trying to get the dogs out, um, Doris basically didn't get out of bed to let them out, it was increasingly more garbage, more clutter and the safety of the home was really becoming more compromised. In June we were able to secure some grants and some volunteer help and some um, materials and rugs were again in this newer trailer so we're, which were retaining much of the odor. So they were removed and linoleum was installed. So at least the cleanup, uh, if we could have gotten a replacement homemaker, would have been much, much better. Unfortunately, no homemaker was now willing to go into the home since June 2012. Uh, Doris's health continues to uh, deteriorate, and 911 is again called frequently. And even um, the EMTs are starting to say, we're not sure we can go back into that home because it's really unsafe for our workers, and uh, it's, it's compromising them. The last admission, Doris is admitted again with a crisis due to her lung disease. And in September 2013, Doris dies. Her condition deteriorated rapidly. She went into a coma, and she succumbed to her her lung condition. Kurt was now 79. And um, we weren't sure what to expect, quite frankly, with Kurt being now home alone. Uh, We weren't sure he could manage being home alone, because Doris had really been the decision maker for everything. two days after Doris's death when the worker was speaking with him, because everyone was checking in with him very often, he said in his own words, the dogs have to go somewhere. He did not want the dogs at home. So clearly he had tolerated the dogs for Doris's sake, but he did not want them there. So having the dogs now gone and cleaning up the home could now allow for a reentry of a homemaker through the the program through Medicaid, the, the choices for independence. So now this made cleanup much easier. Floors were now linoleum, and the dogs were not there. Um, We were wondering again how Kurt was really going to manage. Uh, We asked him about would he be willing to go back to the residential care facility he was in and he would think about it but unfortunately there were no openings. Um, His personal care service provider comes in and she's now taking over a lot of the task that Doris had done because Doris was the bill payer. She made the decision, she decided which errands, which groceries and now this, this personal care service pretendent is now helping um, Kurt and he's accepting that assistance. The surprise six months after Doris's death is that Kurt is doing well. He's still in his own home. Uh, he now initiates phone calls to both the APS worker and to his Choices for Independence case manager. He's more verbal. He's more outgoing. He actually made cookies and used the oven for the first time recently. Despite the fact they were frozen cookies, it, it was a package. He made them, put them on the cookie sheet, didn't burn them. He's learning how to use the stove a little bit. And the home, at long last, is free of odor of urine and feces. I guess a summary with uh, Doris is to think about her as a very strong-willed woman. She understood the decision she was making, and she really understood the consequences. Um, And you may come across people like Doris in in your practice, whether it be the clinic or inpatient. Doris would not volunteer the information, but upon questioning her, she would freely give you the information as to how she was living. So just a few pointed questions might have really told someone, because you wouldn't really have an idea in terms of the housing conditions, in terms of how difficult it was living in that environment. And many times, a report to APS, we serve as the catalyst. Not only do we look at that report and, and look at that, and that is our investigation, but we're often the catalyst for getting other services into a home as it was in Doris's situation. And in Doris's situation, I, I think she really lacked the understanding of what the, her routine office calls would have done for her in terms of monitoring her health. I think she understood a little bit more as far as um, the necessity of going to her pulmonary physician, but she really didn't understand the, the idea of monitoring because she said in her own words, well they don't do anything. Well doing anything to her meant treatment. Uh, being, uh, changing her medication, it meant something physical that she could see. So she really didn't understand why it was, and again it took a lot of physical effort on her behalf to to get ready to go to the doctors, but she didn't understand the necessity of really why she really needed to go. So simple explanations are really um, for Doris and and others sometimes really just reinforcing them and probably making those explanations over and over again so that they really can understand. the necessity of it.
0: And sometimes
1: if you're thinking that somebody might need services, ask that permission to really refer for services because it doesn't have to necessarily result in APS referral. Sometimes some earlier intervention just asking oh, who fix you? who cooks your meal. She might not have described the cardboard box and the, the cookie sheet and the hot plate, but it, may, might have referred, it might have been a referral to Meals on Wheels maybe a little bit sooner because she might have accepted it then. Doris was actually very um, easy to talk to. She really was, um, she, she, she genuinely was able to converse and carry on a, a good conversation. So does anyone have any questions? Um, I have a question. So it's interesting, I think this case study was a great example of the kind of work your office can do and how much you can help people, and I'm just curious about the distinction between their meeting the criteria, obviously they were older, but also the capacity for the incapacitated adult criteria to be referred to APS, but they didn't meet criteria for guardian in terms of they weren't incapacitated, they didn't lack capacity in that to that level. So where's that sort of fine line? in terms of reporting ability of somebody, but they don't meet criteria for guardianship. Guardianship is is, is is the is the is it's the um it's 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 a whole spectrum if you would mm-hmm. if, if someone is at the beginning we have to first determine someone's incapacitated. So they can be incapacitated but still not what we would call ready for guardianship. Mm-hmm. Guardianship really is the ultimate authority which is the court. Which decides you do not have the ability to make decisions um, in your best interest, and they actually check off different categories. And um, that, that's usually in the guardianship um, petition, in terms of it, the ultimate, mm-hmm. ultimate um, taking away of one's rights, if you would. So there's a long, there's a lot of area in between. I refer to kind of as the gray zone. Mm-hmm. the, the the, 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 um, the white is when we know that they can make the decisions because they're very clear about how they make them. And the black is we, we know, again, they're, they're, they're ready for guardianship. The gray is, the, is in what I call the in-between. And that's sometimes very difficult. Mm-hmm. Because someone meets the criteria for incapacity, it allows us to become involved with them. It doesn't necessarily mean that even though they're living in deplorable conditions that they need guardianship. Mm-hmm. Um, Doris was very, able very clearly to express um, how she wanted to live, mm-hmm. how she made her decisions, and it wasn't just our judgment, it was also the judgment of the behavioral health people that became involved because they're the gatekeepers if you would to New Hampshire Hospital. so even at the time that they were brought to the hospital through a, an IEA petition, they were found able to make their own decisions. So it, it's very frustrating, it's frustrating to um, our workers as well as it is to any other organization that might be working with them. Uh, not only Doris and Kurt, but anyone that's kind of, as I said, in that between time where they are not making good decisions, but they're still in the community. Um, and in this situation, they were also in very unsafe, hazardous living conditions because not everybody is in such extreme living conditions. So it's it's hard sometimes to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, to meet our incapacity, we we have structured decision-making tools that will assist and guide us mm-hmm. and um, we also will sometimes use testing um, instruments in terms of um, cognitively w- where, where they're functioning. So we'll use different tools like that. Um, but again, they may not still need a guardian. Mm-hmm. So that that's the ultimate end of the spectrum, if you would, mm-hmm. and where we do the most of our work is the in between. Any okay. other questions from anyone
0: else on that site? No. No? Okay.